Nope. Sounds like Santa came and dropped his sleigh bell. I see him moving on, but he brought us the gift of a wonderful guest today. So I'm excited, Jake. <laughs> Me too. That's great. I um, you know, it's uh it is the season here, so it's it's good. I guess we must have been good this year. We did some good work this year, I guess. I've never heard you laugh that loudly. That's amazing. <laughs> Mission accomplished. <laughs> yeah. Hey, this was uh it was very surprising. <laughs> Excellent. So do you want to do us the honor of introducing our guest, Wendy? Yeah. So uh, our guest today, very excited to have her here, Wendy Weitzner, um, who is a partner at the Anova Group, which is a firm that specializes in facilities planning and strategy for uh, public and private healthcare delivery organizations. And Wendy has a lot of great experience working on large-scale planning efforts for organizations of all sizes. Um, she's worked both inside of uh, delivery organizations and um, also as an external consultant. So her in-house experience at the Tufts Medical Center in Boston, as well as at Kaiser Permanente in California, um, and her consulting background with Noblis and the Smith Group, and, and her current experience at Innova, where she's done incredible work on forecasting and strategies, again, for both public and private sector clients. Her educational background is phenomenal as well. Um, degrees from Tufts, Harvard, as well as Simmons University. And she is a fellow of the American College of Healthcare Executives. In 2020, Wendy was also awarded with the New England Society of Healthcare Strategy Strategist of the Year Award. Very impressive. And so if you can start off and maybe just tell us a little bit about your journey and what you're working on now that, uh, that has you really interested or inspired. Sure. Well, so glad to be here, um, especially with Santa. You know, that's <laughs> an unusual occurrence. Uh, so I think what you highlighted, Jake, is the most exciting for me part of my journey was that I've been at, worked as a consultant and also worked in health systems and also that I've worked in operations as well as planning. And you know that, Jake, having done the same thing, that that balance of being a planner that understands operations, I think, makes you a better planner. And I think being a consultant who's also worked in a health system makes you a better consultant. And if you haven't done this yet, I, if you want to be a consultant, I think having been a consultant makes you a good person inside of a health system as well. So just getting that balance of, of approach and frameworks for how to think about things and having had the operations experience gives you the humility because I think sometimes planners can be very arrogant about what should be done absent having any real world knowledge of how to actually implement anything. Very true. And uh, a couple of the projects that I'm working on I think takes advantage of that balance and uh, working on a replacement facility to uh, large hospitals are combining into one in an urban academic medical center setting. And dozens of ambulatory buildings are combining into this one building. And it's a two million square foot effort, a couple billion dollars, and everything is going to change, right? Because it's a whole new hospital. It's a whole new ambulatory. It's a whole new everything. And it's been an honor to work on it and a real challenge because we have to think about every single process in the hospital, from how the materials are going to move to what pharmacy is going to do, to how do you get 30 different physician practices that are under different billing systems and different organizing structures to come together and work as one system, and uh, what kinds of new technologies are going to be out there, and post-COVID, you know, how are things going to change, and what do we do permanently? So that's been a, a great journey to, to work on that for just about the last year. These things are not fast, these projects. No. 
they're not. And I really, I applaud this system for continuing to move forward with it. I mean, things did get delayed a little bit, you know, took a little bit longer because of COVID. And it's also been interesting to do something that's usually done in person with, you know, the sticky notes and all the kinds of kinetic things that happen for planning these big spaces and trying to do it all over uh, Zoom. So Wendy, today our topic uh, for our podcast, The Thing About Healthcare, is that it's always under construction. It is indeed. Um, And I think just with your experience, really learning a lot around that facility's design and, you know, how do we start to really understand those principles in how we start to evolve care models. But as you talked about COVID, I was actually curious, you know, how has COVID changed the way that you think about facilities design? There's kind of the short term elements that you've mentioned in terms of the planning and actually going through that process. But as you think about how you design a future state, what impact has that had in your thinking? So uh, I'm coming from a perspective of actually trying to do planning and thinking about the impact of COVID, but I've also had the fortune of being on some national and regional uh, think tanks and groups to set up, you know, what are going to be the new standards? Are there going to be new standards post-COVID? And a bunch of this stuff is behind the scenes that people like you and I, or maybe Jake does a little think about in terms of what's above the ceiling and, you know, and the engineering of it. And as you probably know, infection control has always been a part of the standards and designs. It's not like people haven't thought about how to make things safe from an infection perspective. So some of it is really just maybe upping that and upping some of the uh, requirements around outside air and the, the engineering piece of that. But from a planning perspective, what we've been advising is let's figure out what was good. Like what did we learn in COVID from how we're doing operations and planning and using space and make sure that we have that going forward. And then think about the stuff that we're a little bit of a panic about right now and figure out, is this going to be a permanent problem? So Some of the good things I think that we've learned that we're trying to put into new buildings are the flexibility, like the use of PACU bays for ICUs temporarily. It doesn't take a lot of extra cost to make a PACU bay three-walled or have a little bit of extra in it so that it can be flexible to be used for ICUs in the future. We've learned the importance of staff support space and respite space, which I know as a planner often gets taken out um, because it's non-revenue generating kinds of space, but being very thoughtful about how do we rejuvenate our staff that are there and thinking about what needs to be in a hospital. So I've got clients that had a cancer center, an outpatient cancer center in their hospital building, and they basically shut it down, moved all the outpatient cancer stuff over to one of their ambulatory buildings temporarily. And something that was sacrosanct previously, like we must have the cancer program in the hospital, suddenly it turns out it was actually a really good thing that patients didn't have to come into the city and deal with parking and navigate their way through this complex academic medical center in order to have cancer treatment. So I think that it gives us an opportunity, especially in new construction, to consider what should be in the hospital. And that that's actually been related to some of these concerns that people have on, um, you know, what are we going to do? The laboratory, everybody's together in an open laboratory, or the pharmacy, everybody's together in that, or sterile processing. And I don't know that we can afford to make those spaces way bigger so that there's more space 
uh, among everybody. But as we plan for the future, can we get them off the hospital campus at least, especially as systems become bigger and there's more of an economy's option to do that? Do we just have less coming into the hospital so that there's fewer opportunities for exposure? And then the other things that I think we're still noodling on, honestly, is team-based care in an outpatient setting. I think that makes sense operationally. And do we want to get away from team rooms because we're worried about sharing space? And I think the answer is no. I think we need to keep team-based care and just think about how, you know, not everybody's in that room all the time, usually anyway, and are there things we can do from an architectural perspective to try to, or an engineering perspective to try to address and still have that team-based care? And the other thing, which I imagine we're going to have a whole conversation about, is telemedicine. And that with telemedicine, Will that actually or can that actually reduce the amount of space that we need in medical office buildings? And it is highly dependent on how you operationalize it. There's lots of different ways you can do that. So I guess, yeah, I'm, I'm curious to hear what are you, how are you all thinking about this and how are you trying to apply some of what we've learned during COVID as you're working with your clients now? I think sometimes we also have this assumption that, well, if you do telehealth, it's virtual. Well, you still need an appropriate space for people to be able to do that. And so just kind of working through the planning around what does that space look like and how much of that does need to be on campus in case of emergencies versus how much of that can actually go off campus. So just to maybe add a little bit of color to what uh, Jake asked, I would love to hear your thoughts on that. It's a great example of how you know the spreadsheet will tell you one thing and real life will tell you something else. So we, we've done the models, as you probably have, is, okay, if we have 100,000 visits and 15% of them become virtual, now we only have 85,000 visits, therefore we need 15% fewer exam rooms. Well, it doesn't actually work that way is the challenge. And so there's a couple of things we're thinking about is one, as you were just asking, Pradeepa, is where does it happen? So probably from the provider's perspective, the easiest thing is I see a couple of face-to-face and then while I'm sitting in the exam room, I do uh, a either a synchronous or an asynchronous uh, televisit or telemedicine visit, then I see another face-to-face, you know, that they're staying in one place and their flow is optimized. And that's a reasonable way to consider it. But if you do that, you don't need a smaller medical office building because the provider is still in that exam room for an entire session. They're just not seeing as many patients in that exam room face-to-face. So in that case, that spreadsheet means nothing, in fact, because right they're all happening there. The second way to consider it, which is what many of the organizations I'm working with are doing, and probably yours are too, is saying, can we come up with sessions? So one out of every five sessions for a specialist or a provider is going to be virtual, and that virtual visit and that virtual session is not going to happen in the exam room. So then you start to get, you know, the spreadsheet works a little bit more, but we still hit the operational thing. I was just talking with a doctor yesterday at an academic medical center, and she's like, but I only come in once a week. So what is, you know, telling me that 20%, so I'm there for three hours instead of four, like, I don't really understand how that works. So when you get into the rotating specialties, outpatient or outreach kinds of places, even that one out of every five session thing doesn't really work all the time. Then if you are going to do a sessional thing is where is it, which was your question. So we've been doing a little bit of research um, specifically on behavioral health and asking where are those sessions occurring. Of course, they have, because they haven't been set up, been happening at people's homes a lot. A couple of the organizations I've talked to said they intend to keep it that way that it would still happen from people's homes, assuming we can continue to have uh, private, secure connections to do so. 
But there are other organizations that are looking at, and architects are looking at, can we design the virtual care suite that is set up kind of like your setup is pretty, you know, where we've got the right sound and the right acoustics and the right lighting. And would that be on a medical office building? So you might have a suite of exam rooms and then a suite of smaller rooms for the televisit or a command center somewhere, because as you know, some organizations are making these big, huge command centers that have all kinds of, you know, EICUs and everything going on. And so is that the place to have your virtual care? And as some of the designs, what we're doing at this one place that I'm planning right now, is we're having a regular exam suite module. And for every 12 exam rooms, we're putting in a little 55 square foot telemedicine booth off where all the offices and stuff are in in the exam suite with the idea that we're still hoping that they're going to do it in sessions, not there. But if it turns out they have a couple of patient no-shows and they can fill in some visits, they can leave the exam room, go someplace right there, do some visits, and someone else can use their exam room. So we hope that works. That's still a spreadsheet exercise, honestly, but we hope that works and that where the sessions happen is still TBD, but it's not going to be in this new construction. It's sort of a reminder to me that I think in some respects, as we when we initially embarked upon this, it's like, oh, well, we're going to save all this capital because we're not going to be building stuff anymore. And, and I think the reality of it is, is that, well, yeah, we're, we're going to build different stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I, you know, that, that kind of leads me to um, one of the other things we were curious for your your insights about um, standalone EDs. I feel like I've been hearing about those forever. The the standalone urgent cares and these these other things that pop up. Some of them health systems are building and setting up these things in non traditional spaces or at least off of traditional hospital campus. And some of them are done by these third parties. How do you see delivery systems, sort of the traditional players, fitting these into their thinking? And and what's the impact of these? These spring up operations, you know, is this something for that everybody should be thinking about or is it a now we'll leave that to the other guys and we'll focus on core business? Well, and it actually relates to telemedicine because all of those and we spend a lot of time looking at use rates and, and care utilization patterns. And what we've seen is anytime you add a new access point type, freestanding ED, urgent care, um, quick care, telemedicine, they're often not substitutive for the care that was being given before. So it becomes additive. And although in theory, at a macroeconomic level, it's supposed to reduce costs by bringing care to a lower cost setting, I'm not sure it does. And there actually are some, there are some early studies that say it actually does cost more because there's just more touches now. So until the the touch actually becomes substitutive and preventative, it isn't necessarily good for the entire care ecosystem. The fact that that there is an addition or accretive amount of access shows that people do want that access. So it's good for me as the patient that I now, you know, if in the middle of the night I have an earache, can just call somebody and, you know, and have someone take a look at it. So that's good for me. But it's not necessarily good for the whole healthcare system in terms of cost. And it actually gets back to the telemedicine thing that as we think about, oh, is 20% of the visits going to be telemedicine, but maybe only 3% are substituting for what would have been in-person visits. And so I think that's a challenge. I like, I think you were probably implying I'm a little bit skeptical about freestanding EDs and and Mm -hmm. micro hospitals. And I think the micro hospital at its core is somewhat of a play to get hospital-based reimbursement for outpatient services. And that might not last, you know, as there's price and cost parity are supposed to be coming, you know, site neutrality, I guess, site neutral payments that might not last. 
On the other hand, if it's a way to get care to people that otherwise didn't have access to care, so I see it a lot in the mountain states and in the Southwest, partially because they're non-certificate of need states, I think, but partially because they really do have a geography that could probably demand having some kind of way to get care without having to put a whole big hospital for those smaller populations. So I think, yeah, I think I'm, I'm on a B minus, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Something that you said had me kind of thinking about, right, as you put this full picture together, you know, we're always talking about like, what is the hospital or the healthcare system of the future look like? And Jake and I, as we were prepping for this episode, we were kind of joking about it kind of looks the same. What does the future hospital perhaps look like, in your opinion? In the olden times, when I used to fly around places, um, <laughs> I remember I was at a conference about 18 months ago, and I was presenting and I said, you know, Every 10 years or so, consultants like me say there's going to be no more hospital beds or there's going to be this huge reduction in hospital beds. And then we come back and we're always wrong, you know, and we come back another 10 years and say there's going to be fewer hospital beds. And so I'm here this time to tell you again why this time <laughs> there's not going to be any more <laughs> hospital beds in the future. And I could see, of course, the payment mechanisms have to follow this. I think that's why it always looks the same is because mm -hmm. the payment doesn't change. But if the payment changed, I could see there there are examples of this around the country where there's these SNF plus, you know, a skilled nursing facility that can do 23-hour ASC care, uh, ambulatory surgery center care, or with some of the um, innovation center grants or, or waivers where you can bypass a three-day rule of a hospital and go right from the ED to a SNF. So I can imagine if we could get the payment to work that there's a setting that is the SNF ASC 23 hour, you know, uh, even some of these are under 72 hours, you know, so let's call it in the middle and say, if you're going to be there for two or fewer days and they know it and it's mostly elective or they can bypass, you can go to a hospital ED and then get transferred over or even have an urgent care plus at this kind of facility. And then the hospital, you know, which is back to what people have been saying for 50 years is it's going to be an ICU only, but it actually could be close to that if there could be a payment and organizational structure that would work for this SNF urgent care ASC plus kind of setting. The question is, as I even said before, is will that actually be better? You know, because in some markets, that just adds more sites of care and inefficiency. So it is theory a lower cost setting, but not a lower cost setting if it results in a diseconomy of scale in a market in order to do that. And I think the second reason why, so one is the payment mechanism. And the second reason why the hospital of the future always looks like the hospital of last year is when we're planning, you know, f five, 10 years out and using the last dollar of capital this organization is going to do, it's extraordinarily risky to put it on something that isn't what you already do now and make money at now. It's hard to do. The, the one effort that I'm working on right now, I really applaud them. They are trying to make the sum smaller than the sum, some of the parts or the whole is smaller than the sum of the parts where they are really putting some effort behind as we put these two hospitals together in the inner city, let's have fewer beds because we're going to make sure we're putting our patients if they call in and they really could be at one of our suburban hospitals that they will be there. Let's put in a command center that when someone's calling in for an ED, we send them to one of our urgent care sites if that makes more sense. So some organizations can do it, but as someone who writes business cases, I can tell you it's a hard case to do to say we're going to put all this money for less volume. 
So how do you consider agility in those planning assumptions and design? Because I think we've probably all at some point in our career encountered the waiting room that's too small. Well, why? Because patients will never wait. Well, they're still waiting, right? And so all you then have is an overcrowded waiting room. And that's one example. But as you're talking about, again, I think it's amazing that, you know, there's a health system out there really thinking about that. And then how do you really think about you're building a facility for decades to come? How do you really think about that agility um, in your planning process? So some of it is the architectural that's that's been around for a while is architecturally trying to come up with a fairly standardized structural grid so that if you need to change the use of a space, you're less likely to end up having a column in the middle of the room or something. So thinking ahead of time about how that grid works, that can it work for multiple uses over time. There's also some getting better technology, like um, the fancy term that the architects use is demountable partitions, which is basically movable walls. And they've been around for a while, but now they're getting much better in terms of their acoustics and stuff. So we do see even fairly complex things being built with these more movable walls. And so it becomes easier to move. And you have to design the space to make those work. So that's another way. And this gets a little bit into the, it's almost disagreeing with myself and saying that more things should be off the campus. But we do see sometimes people our health systems putting ambulatory, for example, on the hospital campus because it can become inpatient later. It becomes almost their shell space if they need to, or we build a medical office building with a floor of offices with the goal that someday those won't be offices and there'll be more exam rooms or something like that. So those are some of the ways we think about the agility. And stepping back a little bit even from your question is one of the things I, I talk with clients a lot about is make sure when we're designing the space or planning space that we're solving the problem and not the symptom of the problem. Just using your waiting room as an example, I did work with one organization that insisted they needed a bigger waiting room. And all the models I was running were saying, you know, this shouldn't have, you don't have that many patients coming through here. You know, I don't understand, you know, why you do. And they said, that's right. You don't understand. We have to do our child life activities out in the waiting room why are you doing them in the waiting room? It's like, well, because we don't have space in the clinic. It's like, wait, so you're going to solve that by making a bigger waiting room? Like, we're planning the new space now. Let's get the space in the clinic to do the child life stuff, right? You know, and not putting the waiting room. And so there's this tendency to just try to incrementally fix what we have now, and we end up solving the wrong thing. So going through an operational process of five whys or a lean or whatever to figure out what are we actually trying to solve here can also help with that. The, the only thing that I sometimes, that I'm personally interested in that is the life cycle of facilities and that in, in Boston, we're, you know, we've got ICUs in buildings from 1850 and in California, like it's 20 years old, we got to get rid of it. And, and I don't know enough from the architectural construction, but also just the philosophy of how long should a hospital building or a healthcare building last and it gets to your agility question a little bit too of, you know, do you just stick with what you have and, and when do you give up? I mean, I think it's an interesting question. I don't have all the answers to that one either, but I think it's an interesting question. Yeah. Should we be planning and should we be creating these facilities um, so that we can operate them for a hundred years? And, you know, maybe you're tinkering with the inside over the course of that. Or do we need to set more on a path of we should be figuring out how to get rid of buildings <laughs> um, rather than saying we need to build this new one? And, and 
and maybe the answer there is, well, we're going to build this thing. And then as we get rid of, we'll get rid of other older stuff. Yeah. And, and I've, I've challenged because I've been on your, you know, I've been the owner as the architects call it is the idea of a life cycle. So if you spend a dollar 50 now, you'll save $20 over the life cycle of this bill. You know, so you put in some investment now for the flexibility or agility and you spend a dollar fifty now, you'll save twenty dollars over the life cycle of the building. And I always argued with the architects, like I get some of that, but what if I only have a dollar? And if I only have a dollar, what's the best way for me to spend that? And don't keep telling me about the dollar fifty, and don't make me feel bad that I'm going to spend twenty over the life cycle because I'm not spending a dollar fifty. We've all, you know, you got the ten-year roof on your house instead of the twenty-year roof on your house, or you. You didn't get the Mercedes Benz, you know, you, you got the 10 year old Camry for your daughter, even though you know that it's not as safe as, right? That we, in real life, we sometimes only have a dollar. And it's this kind of situation where I, you know, have a question as much as an answer, but that we need to think about those longer term investments to say which of them are worth it. I, I don't think I need a 10 year carpet if probably in five years I'm going to want to change the way it looks anyway. But other things like we've learned in COVID, investing in an infrastructure system that can get you more outside air or more negative pressure rooms and are, is very expensive to do after the fact, you know, is maybe something that you consider doing now. You know, if you're doing a project, uh, either a big project or a small project, and you're doing a business case for it, you know, there, there's obviously a financial component to any capital investment that you're that you're going to make. But how do you start to incorporate, you know, some of those other, you know, whether it's clinical outcomes or quality outcomes? How do you bring those other pieces um, into the into the conversation as you're developing the business case? And also then, you know, how does that influence the, the innovation um, that, that, that might bring to a project? It's a great question. So the architects for, I don't know, probably a decade now have uh, been adding more to the body of literature around this. So you might have heard the phrase evidence-based design, where they actually are trying to do studies. It's, it's hard to do, you know, controlled scientific kinds of studies, but doing studies to understand the impact of daylight on recovery or uh, uh, walking distances on the amount of time that a nurse spends with a patient versus hunting and gathering for supplies and linen and, and things like that. So I think the body of evidence now in evidence-based design is getting better and better. So we have a better understanding of what actually does lead to safer results, shorter length of stay, more time with the patient. And some of them aren't always measurable, but I think we can agree, even if we can't measure it, it's better for a nurse to spend more time with a patient than looking for a linen, you know. Mm -hmm. So that body of evidence is getting better, which is which is good. And then the rest of I actually am pretty skeptical sometimes where it says, well, if we reduce walking distances, you know, then we need fewer transporters or something. And I said, well, are you really going to have fewer transporters? Because I'm not <laughs> going to put that in, you know, the transporters might be happier and it's going to be better for their feet and it's better for the patient. You know, there's a lot of other great things but I don't want to put it literally in a business case until I can show that it actually does reduce a certain number of people. If it puts the people to buy higher and better use, it still is a great outcome. So I'm not skeptical of that part. It's more being uh, truthful in the, in the actual financial business case around some of those. Reminds me of what one of my mentors used to say, like, I've never seen a pro forma that I don't like. 
Right, right. <laughs> yeah, tell me what you want to come out and we'll make the performance work that way. Right? Yeah, like I hear her voice. Um, <laughs> so on that note then, like why is it so hard to find and adopt best practices? I, you know, as an operational person who works a lot with, you know, consulting companies and people who come in, a lot of times it feels like we're starting from scratch on some things that, you know, from a design perspective, it kind of is what it is. Yeah. There are some flow things we can look at, but there are certain things that just, they are what they are. But like, why is that so hard? And especially as this kind of book of evidence, if you will, is starting to build and how yeah. do we kind of get to a point where we can really start to look at how do we like reduce variability, right? Just like we talk about in clinical care, how do we start to reduce variability around kind of these facilities pieces? Uh, it is possible to set standards and assume that they are best practice. I think. And, and, you know, I do, I joke about how is it possible we don't know the right size and layout of an exam room by now. You know, architects all over the country, planners like me all over the country have done mock-ups and brought people through and simulations and everything. Like, how come we don't have the right answer? And I think partially is there is no right answer. Like, there is no one answer. So we just have to be comfortable with the fact that it's a good answer and might maybe not the best answer. And then it's partially that certain organizations, in order to get the buy-in to change, need to go through the process themselves. So there's some skepticism if we come in and say, I know this is the way you do it now, you're going to do it this way now, that if they don't go through that process and get to that conclusion, it will not be accepted. And invariably, there's something a little bit wrong with any, you know, if you've done your kitchen or anything, anything you've renovated afterwards, you're like, gosh, I wish I didn't do that. And there's this lingering issue if even those tiny little things that might be wrong, if you didn't bring people through a process, there'll be this bitterness that, you know, we weren't involved in the process. They did this wrong thing. And if only they had asked us, this wouldn't happen. And some of that is true. I mean, I've done, I've been planning facilities for decades now. And every time I go through one of these processes, I do learn a little bit more. But I joke where I said, you know, do you want the 10% that's wrong to be your 10% or my 10%? Because there's going to be 10% wrong. And if we, if you just use mine, we'll save a year off the planning process. <laughs> so, it, and some organizations actually even come to me and say, I don't want to, you know, Wendy, just give us the answer. We don't know what we're doing. And anything we're going to come up with is not as any better than what you would come up with from having done this at 20 other places. So it's really interesting to see how organizations are different. Some really don't want to go through any process and say, whatever's out there is a good practice is good enough for us. Um, and others that um, feel like they need to organically go through that process themselves or possibly be leading you know, the industry in thinking about those. We've talked before on our show, at least, about how for the amount of money that the U.S. healthcare system spends, the outcomes just don't back it up. I'm really curious from a facilities and planning perspective, what does this look like globally? Like, are other countries using different materials, different processes, or are they kind of grappling with the same issues that we are? How are other places figuring it out and doing it in a way that's actually supporting their healthcare system, clearly in a much better way than we are? Right. Well, I'm from the facilities perspective, um, Canada is like Kaiser Permanente. <laughs> you know, Canada, for the most part, has pretty strict rules. Like it's like the whole, it's like a 
certificate of need country, right? <laughs> so it's fairly prescribed and how you justify the need for something. Relatively, I don't think there's literally standards, but equivalent to the, the Facilities Guideline Institute or FGI that's used for like room sizes in hospitals, there's something that's a little more national in, in Canada. So there's some systems that manage it more um, and that have more standards and also perhaps fund it differently. The, in Canada and some other countries, there's these public-private partnerships of how they fund the healthcare buildings and operations. And then there are other places that, you know, I'm intrigued by, which feel like they're behind, but are some of the things, back to the supersizing thing, are there certain things that we've gone overboard on in terms of privacy or control or whatever that maybe our patients don't need and isn't worth it? And that that's a tough one. It's hard to undo something once we have it as a, you know, the all of the codes tend to build on top of the existing codes and never go back and say, was that code even needed to begin with? I mean, for the longest time, you know, there was the keeping up with the Joneses um, mm -hmm. factor that went into planning as well. It's like, I, I sometimes wonder, well, is, is consol I, you don't hear about that as much, I guess. And is the consolidation the driver behind that or has, or is it just scarcer dollars? I mean, I've, I've kind of wondered, and, and maybe you as a consultant looking across different organizations, you still see some of that um, push behind, oh, well, we need to do this because our competitors are doing this. Yeah, and it depends on the market, how aligned the physicians are to the health system. So I think a lot of times if the physicians are free agents and can compete the hospitals against each other, then the hospitals, you know, if hospital A got a robot for this urologist, then we need to get a robot for this urologist because then they won't do cases here. So some of it is around the physician side. And there's other reasons to have all private inpatient. That's a big thing, you know, making all private. There's infection control, you know, lots of other reasons to do all private rooms. But the competitive reason to do all private rooms, I'm not sure I've really understood because 80% of the people are in that hospital, or 70%, because they came in through the emergency room, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's not like they're like thinking, hmm, am I going to get a private room? You know, they're they're going to the emergency room. And then the other 20% are because they were recommended to surgeon so-and-so. And I think even then, you know, they're not saying, well, I don't think I want to see Dr. So-and-so because when I, after I'm admitted, I'm going to be in a semi-private room. Like, do they even know that? You know, and, and maybe they will because they visited people there and it looks like a dump. But I really, I'd love to do a study on that, you know, to say, does it really affect choice, you know, consumer? I mean, there are lots of studies about what makes people go choose a doctor or choose a mm -hmm. hospital. And, um, you know, usually it's a doctor's reputation. And, and one doctor once said to me, patients go where the best doctors are, doctors go where the best nurses are. And so what does the private room have to do with that? You know, on the other hand, you don't want to go into a dungeon and, and, and that people, that hospitality thing, it is something that people do understand. They can walk into a place and say, it looks dirty. I feel unsafe, you know? And so if that's the case, they might not go back to that emergency room. And then those 80% of admits that come in through the emergency room aren't going to happen. So it's, some of it is even figuring out where to put that money, you know, where are the portals that people actually do see. And that's, a, you know, when you raise that point, I remember having this conversation um, in a previous life with people to say, 
you know, we keep coming back to looking at our satisfaction scores and saying, well, it's because we have semi-privates. But if you actually look at the benchmarking data within the same database around top box satisfaction, some of the highest scores for would recommend, actually, it's a health system in Boston, (laughs) very prominent academic medical center. I mean, they're leading in that space. And it's like, to your point earlier, It's an old building, Mm -hmm. semi-private rooms. And so really how much of it is the interaction versus the actual physical space? And we can never get past that question because people just couldn't answer it, didn't want to answer it. And it always kind of comes back to, well, we need new spaces. Yeah. And there was once when we were planning, doing a mass plan, a new facility and a sociology department at a local college had done some kind of study for the school before we got there. And it was around the the patient's experience with the space. And I'll never forget this line. It was great. They said, I really love this place. Every time I'm lost, there's someone there to ask me if they can help me find my way. Nobody said, I hate this place. I'm always lost. Mm hmm. Every time I'm lost, there's someone there asking me if they can help me find my way. So, so much of it is around the people and how helpful are they and you feel like you're going through a good process. What are a couple of examples that, you know, this was going to be the next best thing. This was going to totally change the way that healthcare is delivered and then just totally bombed. Um, (laughs) We want the the horror story from what you've seen. (laughs) And you don't have to name names, but... I don't know if it's totally bombed, but some of the things that we talked about that we're not so sure are going to be lasting, like the freestanding EDs. And one thing that was really hot for a while and is starting to come back, but really, I think basically bombed, was the universal room. So there was this idea that like there's an LDRP for birthing and postpartum, that we should have that same kind of thing for cardiac care, for orthopedic care, and that we never transfer patients. And one health system did pilot that and promoted a lot for cardiac care, and it was successful. But actually, I think that they are not doing that anymore. But for a while, the architects and everybody were planning these universal rooms and saying this is going to be the model and all the nurses were going to move around and the patient was going to stay in one place. And pretty much it just didn't work. It didn't work from a staffing perspective. It was fairly expensive because every room had to be designed to be an ICU. So it was one of these things that really made a lot of sense, you know, on paper, but it didn't really hold up over time. And and then it, others, I think, are cyclical. You know, in the in the 80s and 90s, when there was managed care 1.0, and there was all the dock in the box things, you know, and they were everywhere, these dock in the box, right? And then they all disappeared. But now they're all back, and they're calling themselves urgent care. <laughs> so, you know, maybe it was like the, a good idea at the wrong time, you know, and now it's making sense. But they all disappeared, or almost all. Kind of, a, I guess, the, the flip side of the previous question, um, what's something that you were highly skeptical about um, that then has turned out to evolve into one of those best practices? So there was a time, gosh, it's probably 15 years ago when I was interviewing for a project. And one of my standard lines about why you want to hire us or something about planning is you want to differentiate fads from trends. And Usually I would just say that statement and I'd go on to the next thing, but someone in the audience like raised their hand and said, well, give me an example. Like, what do you think is a fad and, and not a trend? And the answer I gave turned out to be wrong. And I said, I think private room NICUs are a fad. And 
and and I think actually now, you know, I've corrected myself. I think it actually is a trend and, and makes sense. But it was at the time that, I guess this is another one of those maybe failures, is there was this period of supersizing where everything, every room type, every room quantity was just getting bigger and bigger and bigger to accommodate all kinds of things. And actually the universal room is an example of that. So, and I felt like the NICU, I was, I was joking, I actually planned in, in the Midwest of, 40 or bed private NICU or something. And I said, we've got a, a space the size of a football field for a patient the size of a football. <laughs> you know, that like it just didn't seem right to me. <laughs> um, but there's evidence, you know, and there's around the clinical indications for being able to control the environment and the sound and the noise and the temperature and circadian rhythms and, and things like that. So um, that was one that I really, I thought was going to be a fad and go away that, that is sticking there. So switching gears just a little bit, how, how do you start to think about um, just knowing that we have broader issues to deal with um, at that societal level? And knowing that healthcare is really at the center of it, how do you start to think about dealing with those issues that have that impact? And so it could be anything from, you know, how do we better support maybe community health type spaces? It could be even in our metrics for how we're selecting vendors. How do we really make sure that we are starting to put the money into, you know, truly minority owned and operated businesses? Like, what are some of those uh, themes that are kind of coming up in your space? And, you know, what's your kind of perspective on how we can continue to advance that type of work? I think it, as with some other things we talked about, I hate to sound so negative about it, but it still is a money issue, right, around how do you make a business case. And in a fee-for-service environment, it's hard to make the case, you know, outside of we have our nonprofit status and therefore need to put some money into the community. It's hard to make a business case around some of the social determinant kinds of things. And I totally, I mean, the, the human in me really applauds knowing that you can't cure the asthma if the person doesn't have an air conditioner, you know, or that there's, it really is so much upstream stuff that causes the downstream demand on the health system. And just amazing stories, as you're aware of, of, you know, if you really do try to look at those social determinants, you could make an amazing impact on on the quality of somebody's life. So I, you know, again, as a human, I truly believe in that. And the question is, how do you, how can we incentivize the health system to address that? Or should it be the health system's job to address that? And does the health system deal with people who are sick, you know, which is what we're doing now, and have other structures, perhaps better funded and better organized that keep people from being sick? And it, and I don't know that that's the right answer, but that at least the way it's it's mostly paid for now, that I think is what is likely to happen. When ACOs and healthcare reform and stuff was first happening, and since I'm a consultant, I'm on planes all the time, and occasionally I would actually talk to the person next to me on the plane, and <laughs> and and they would say, oh, you know, you're in healthcare, can you explain, you know, what does this healthcare reform mean, and what is fee for value. They wouldn't use those terms, but, you know, what does this all mean? And I said, well, it's kind of like, you know, if we've decided that in the United States, clothing costs too much. People are spending too much money on clothing. And it's either because people have too many clothes, you know, they're buying too many clothes, or each pair of each piece of clothing costs too much. But the result is that people are, it's just costing too much. And we're asking Nordstrom's to solve that problem. 
right? You know, why would Nordstrom want to do anything about people buying too much clothing, you know, or clothing costing too much? It just doesn't make any sense. They're in the business and they make money selling clothes. And so I feel that that's the same way, you know, with the exception of Kaiser, you know, and Geisinger and other places. And I think there is, obviously, there's been a decade now of experimentation of trying to get to fee for value. But there are plenty of organizations I work with that are still Nordstrom, right? <laughs> and they sell cardiac caths and they sell emergency room visits and they sell knee replacements. And there's just not a way for them to sell preventative care in a way that's anywhere near the kind of profit. Even a nonprofit obviously needs to make profit. So any, there's no, anywhere near that, that they can make the same kind of money on preventative care or in housing. Um, as they can in doing cardiac cath. So I think that's the challenge of that. But I also, I do have hope that many people in the health organizations are humans like I am, and as humans want to do the right thing for their community and really do believe it, that they, you know, believe that they have a mission to help their community. Um, and it's just finding their way through to, to do that and have the highest impact. You know, where can they make the highest impact? And I'm not sure if, you know, building housing is the way that a health system can have impact, but understanding some of the, the predeterminants of health in somebody's housing situation or being able to send out doing paramedicine to send out people to see what's going on in someone's house that's going to make them ill. I think that makes sense, but I don't know necessarily that like, they should be building housing. Yeah, and I guess in terms of your work as well, and maybe it's your firm or your work, um, how are you all thinking about like how you're making an impact? Well, I think our our job as planners is to help health systems be good stewards of capital, right? Since we're doing a lot of facilities planning, we want to make sure that their investments are getting them the best return, both in terms of just a pure financial return, but also in terms of a community impact return. And I think by being helping being good stewards of capital, we're helping the community because we're helping them spend money in the right place. And so maybe there's some money left over to spend in the community. I also joke, I've got many of my architect friends who are very into green and you know climate kinds of things. And I say, well, you know, in a way, I think I'm doing the most green thing because if I'm making your building 20% smaller than you otherwise <laughs> would, you know, that's having a lower impact on the environment by having a, a smaller footprint, literally. So I think that, you know, as planners, what we can do is help the organization prioritize where to spend its money. And, you know, the old saying, no margin, no mission, is that if we can set up a portfolio that gives them the margin to support the mission and have that balanced scorecard approach to determining their investments, I think that's one way for us to have that impact. Well, Wendy, thank you so much. Um, I learned a tremendous amount and you just have this wealth of knowledge with all of your experience, like everything from strategy to being the owner, as you said, <laughs> to being in the consulting space. And so I could talk to you for hours, but thank you so much for making time to be with us. Absolutely. Thrilled to be here. And uh, if you ever just want to talk about other stuff, I'm, I'm around. I'll definitely friend you on some social media <laughs> if you're okay. Not to be weird, but I would love to stay with all my followers. Right. I know we're just meeting. <laughs> yeah. Have a good holiday, everybody. And thanks for your time today. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. You too. And uh, 2021, I feel it. It's going to yeah. be better. Yeah, so. yeah. Happy New Year to I'll you. See the light. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> well, thank you so much. And to our audience, uh, we will be back uh, next month. So we hope to see you back again. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Don't forget to subscribe.